Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In today's episode, we welcome back one of our regular favourites. It's Mr. Tony DeBell. Welcome back, Tony. Thank you. And we are doing June IFRIC update. So we are. two days of meetings in 20 minutes or a little bit more. We'll see how we do. And it was a sad time because it was your last IFRIC meeting, Tony. It was. Six years have passed, so oh, I'm now yeah. rotated off. Tony's got a tear in his eye for those people that can't see him. <laughs> and did you have a leaving party? <laughs> We had the IFRIC dinner that we usually have day between the meetings. And did you all have Tony t-shirts on? We'll no. miss you, Tony. <laughs> I would have had one if I'd been invited, Tony, honestly. <laughs> okay, our listeners don't want to know that they want to talk about technical issues. So we're literally, we're going to take the agenda in order. Some things we might not cover if they're covered in a later podcast we've got coming out. But if they're not, don't panic, we will cover them at some point. Okay, so let's start at the top of the agenda. And we started with a little cluster of questions around our new leasing standard, IFRS 16. So first question you got was around how you determine the incremental borrowing rate. What did the Interpretations Committee conclude on that one? Right, so we had a question about how an entity goes about determining the incremental borrowing rate. And the question was quite specific. Typically, if you're looking to determine the incremental borrowing rate, then you're going to be looking at the interest rate on other instruments. And the question is whether an entity should look at the interest rate on an amortizing loan that is paid off over the term, which is similar to the way a lease is structured because lease payments are made over the term, or whether it's acceptable to look at a loan with a bullet repayment. And the reason this is important is that loan with a bullet repayment will probably have a different interest rate to reflect the different risk. And the committee's observation here is that the definition of incremental borrowing rate in IFRS 16 does not refer to an amortizing loan. It simply refers to a loan of a similar duration, so a similar term. So the committee concluded that IFRS 16 does not specifically require the use of the interest rate on an amortizing loan, but that an entity will uh, might often look to the rate on an amortizing loan as the starting point for estimating its incremental borrowing rate. So, so that's where we landed. Uh, that, that tentative decision will be issued uh, as a draft sometime in June uh, with 60 days for folks to comment. Great. So we feel IFRS 16, plenty of guidance in there, good starting point there to come up with incremental borrowing rate. And then you moved on to uh, another tricky area we get lots of questions on, which was lease term and also yeah. a bit of useful life in there. Which is Indeed. My, my so there standards. Were, um, there's one topic on the agenda, but there, there are two questions yeah. here. Uh, and so the, the, the first one is around determining the lease term. And there's some explicit guidance in IFRS 16 for how an entity uh, assesses whether or not it's reasonably certain that the lessee will extend the lease or will not exercise uh, a right to terminate. But before you get to that step, the entity has to determine whether there is still a contract, so whether there are still enforceable rights. And IFRS 16 says that there are no longer enforceable rights when either party, the lessee or the lessor, can cancel the lease without the consent of the other and without paying a significant penalty yeah. or incurring a significant penalty. And the question is, well, what's a penalty? Penalty is not defined. Yeah. And so uh, one group of people might say, well, if there's no specific penalty, so there's nothing in the lease that says 
paying. If the lessee wants to cancel a, uh, wants to cancel or not exercise a termination uh, um, extension option, there's a cash payment. Yeah, that will be a penalty. Uh, the question was: Is the notion of penalty, because it's not defined, wider than that? So, does a penalty include, for example, a situation where the lessee has spent a lot of money on fixtures and fittings, leasehold yeah. improvements? Yeah. Should the lessee consider penalty more broadly? If we looked at it from the perspective of the lessor, if it was a highly specialised asset, would the lessor ever refuse to extend the lease because there might not be another lessee? And here the committee concluded that you need to think about the notion of penalty more broadly than simply a cash payment specified by the lease. You need to look at the economic substance of the arrangements as a whole to decide whether or not either party will suffer a significant penalty. And if they will, there are enforceable rights. And then you move on to the next step of the model around whether or not it's reasonably certain that the lease term will get extended. Okay, so if there was leasehold improvements, which I know your next is the next question, mm. you would consider that in your yeah. penalties. I think it's important that the, the the committee's observations is that these are things you would consider. You can't ignore them, but the outcome is not uh, is not determined. So you just yeah. need to consider things more broadly. So the the next question uh, gets on to the intersection between the term of the lease determined under IFRS sixteen and the useful life of assets determined under IAS 16. And so you're right, I think um, leasehold improvements is a good example. The lessee has a lease, the lessee has the right to extend, and has concluded that it's not reasonably certain that it will extend, but it has installed some leasehold improvements. Can it depreciate those leasehold improvements over a period longer than the lease term? So assume they can't be moved. So if they're yeah. taken out, they're, they're scrapped. Yeah. So the leasehold improvements will last longer, but the lease will end before the useful life of the uh, leasehold improvements comes to an end. And so is that useful life therefore constrained by the term of the lease? And here the committee said that there's some judgment that an entity would obviously have to consider the impact of the lease term, because that's what IAS 16 says it must do. So it needs to take into account the lease term in thinking about the useful life, but there is not a one-size-fits-all answer that says definitively the useful life under IAS 16 is always constrained by the term of the lease under IFRS 16. Okay, okay, important one there. And uh, yeah, we don't like rules in IFRS, so we like a bit of judgment and principles. Okay, and that again, tentative decisions, so same mm-hmm. applies. I won't keep saying it if we'll, yeah. we'll just highlight the one that isn't a tentative decision. Okay, so that was a little bit on um, leasing, our starting point. You then got into another new issue that had been submitted around our favourite financial instruments, and even my biggest favourite, hedging. Mm. Ooh, you must have had a field day. <laughs> what did you talk about here? So the question here, it's IFRS 9 hedging, and whether or not an entity can identify and apply hedge accounting to a component of a non-financial asset. And so the question is whether there is a hedgeable risk within a non-financial asset, for example, a right-of-use asset, or perhaps an asset in the scope of IS-16. And so the question is, can an entity identify a foreign currency risk component that could then be subject to a fair value hedge? And 
Here the committee looked at the guidance in IFRS 9 and said, um, well, it is, it is possible that a, there is a component of a non-financial asset that is subject to foreign currency risk. So, for example, if an entity might sell uh, something in IS 16 or a right-of-use asset before the end of its useful life, and the fair value, the, the price, would be determined only in a foreign currency. So the fair value can be determined only in, in another foreign currency. Then there might be a foreign currency risk component. It might be possible for that to be uh, separately identified and reliably measured, which is the requirement in IFRS 9. Uh, but even then, the entity would have to demonstrate that its risk management strategy was to manage the foreign currency risk within that component. Uh, and so this has become an issue with, with IFRS 16 becoming effective and lease liabilities going on the books. Yeah. And because it's not the lease liability that's being hedged, the committee said, well, actually, management will need to determine that it does actually manage the foreign currency risk within the non-financial asset. And so I think the committee concluded that, yes, it is possible to meet the criteria for there to be a currency component that could be hedged. And if there is, then you've got to apply all of the remaining requirements of IFRS 9 before you conclude you get hedge accounting. Yeah, so, so it's complicated. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a slightly niche topic, Yeah, but the impact is potentially quite significant. And again, it's a tentative decision that will appear and be open for comment for 60 days. Okay. Okay, so especially, I suppose, if you've got lots of overseas mm-hmm. leases or um, assets there as well mm-hmm. to look out. Okay, next one we move on to is, I feel like it's, you know, maybe in your top five standards, Tony. It's definitely in your, <laughs> your favourites. Uh, statement of cash flows. And this was around the amendment that came in. When did it come in? One, two years two ago? Two years now? ago. Um, around the um, additional disclosure requirements for your... Liabilities arising from financing activities. So yes, that's probably not the right the title I remember. But what was what was the issue here? So the question here is: there is a new disclosure requirement that uh, I think you got it exactly right. It requires entities to provide disclosures that allowed users to evaluate the impact of changes in liabilities um, that will be classified as financing activities. And the committee received feedback from investors that investors were not impressed with the disclosures that they were seeing. Uh, They felt that they couldn't be reconciled easily to the primary statements and that there might not be an appropriate level of disaggregation. So the question that the committee asked itself was whether complying with the disclosure requirements in IAS 7 would allow an entity to meet the disclosure objective. So the new disclosure objective in IAS 7. So that's what... Uh, that was the question that we asked ourselves, and the committee's observation is yes. An entity that properly applies the disclosure requirements of IAS 7 will satisfy the disclosure objective, uh, and that's what will appear in the agenda decision. Yeah, okay. So there's already lots of good guidance in there. I think the yeah. paper's really good on this one as well. It talks through each of the paragraphs in the, the disclosure requirements yeah. and how we think it satisfies it. Um, or not we, I'm not on the EFRIC. Then you had some lunch. <laughs> then, moving on. Um, now, this next one, so this was on IFRS 10 and IFRS 15 yeah. to do with um, selling real estate in a corporate wrapper. Yeah. This one, I think, this isn't a tentative decision, my understanding. It's not. So the question here is scope question. It's, uh, which, which standard applies? So think about, as an example, a real estate developer 
So it's it, its ordinary activities are to build and sell real estate. But uh, for whatever reason, whether it's legally driven or, or maybe it's tax advantageous, to sell the real estate in a corporate wrapper. The question is, well, that feels like a contract with the customer. So is that in the scope of IFRS 15? But because the corporate wrapper is being sold, the shares are being sold, is that in the scope of IFRS 10? And there are some quite significant differences. And the first and most obvious is if you're in IFRS 10 selling a subsidiary, you get a gain or loss on disposal. You don't get revenue and cost of sales. Uh, But the revenue over time guidance would not apply to the sale of a subsidiary. And the guidance for contingent consideration, variable consideration, is very yeah. different. Yeah. So the accounting could be quite different. Uh, and here, the, the, the committee was minded to agree with the staff's conclusion that uh, following the, the, the guidance would put you in IFRS 10. But most of the committee were also troubled that that did not provide useful information. And so the committee has asked the staff to do a little bit more work and to also ask the IASB uh, whether the IASB has any appetite for standard setting. So to um, think about maybe an amendment to the scope of IFRS 10 that would put this type of transaction into IFRS 15. So there is no published tentative agenda decision on this one. Okay, so this one will get put through to the board and they'll decide next steps. Great. Okay, moving on then. Another standard for us to consider, another new matter. You had a lot of people were busy, oh. weren't they? It's like they've stopped for summer and they wanted to send you in lots of questions. So we got to IS1 and specifically around uh, IFRIC 23, so taxes, and the presentation of your liabilities or assets arising from applying IFRIC 23. Mm. So the question is, is where do they get presented? Yeah. So an entity applies IFRA 23 to recognise and measure obligations or assets for tax uncertainties. Uh, and the question is, uh, when you get to the balance sheet, are those uncertainties reflected in the measurement of current and deferred tax on the balance sheet, or should they be presented somewhere else? So is there an argument that says, well, they feel a bit like provisions, and okay, I've got to recognise and measure it by applying IFRA 23, but can I present it as a provision? Uh, and here the, um, uh, the committee observed that uh, the, the intersection of IFRIC, 12, of, of IFRIC 23 with IS 12 is that an entity is measuring its current taxes to include tax uncertainties. That's what IFRIC 23 tells you to do. Yeah. It tells you to measure your deferred taxes taking into account the impact of tax uncertainties. And so the committee concluded that the impact of uncertainties is reflected in current tax uh, and in deferred tax and that the balances should not be presented anywhere else. Okay. Okay, so good one there to watch out for in your balance sheet for your presentation. Moving on, this is like a little collection of your favourites. You've done tax, now on to revenue. So we've got a bit on, this is uh, a new topic around, um, specifically I think the question was from the airline industry for this one, and it was where you get compensated for delays or cancellations of flights. Yeah, so uh, the the, the question was specifically uh, phrased in the context of airlines, but it could apply, um, could apply to railways for example. So it, 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 it could apply elsewhere. And the, the, the question is around the, the treatment of compensation for delays. So in some parts of the world, the EU is a good example, that there is, uh, the airlines have to pay statutory compensation when flights are delayed by more than a certain period. And so the question was, 
is that variable consideration in the context of IFRS 15? So is it in effect a penalty for not satisfying the performance obligation or not delivering the promised service? Or is it something that is closer to a warranty? So some sort of compensation for damage that, that, that would be presented as an expense. Uh, and here the committee's view was that the, the requirements of the law are in substance a part of the contract. They are part of the contract between the passenger and the airline and that the requirement to pay compensation is triggered because the airline does not satisfy uh, or does not deliver what it promised to do by delivering the customer from point A to point B uh, within a specified time window and therefore it is variable consideration and it would be deducted from revenue. Uh, the committee specifically did not address the question of what happens when um, the compensation exceeds yeah. the price of the ticket. Okay. We, just, we just didn't address that. Yeah, address the question you were asked. So Indeed. that's good. <laughs> and the last new matter was agriculture, and I'm yeah. the only one that cares, so we won't cover that one today. And we'll move on to, you then had a whole collection of finalising agenda decisions. We did, yeah. four to finalise. Uh, we might have talked about them a little bit before, but let's whip through them in turn. So another IFRS 15 one, and you've got around the cost to fulfil a contract. Yeah, so so the question that we talked about first time at the last meeting was uh, an entity that's applying the overtime model uh, in IFRS 15, recognising revenue over time, and it's using an output measure. So it's not looking at its cost to determine its progress, it's looking at perhaps a physical measure of its output. Yeah. Uh, and the question was whether or not the entity should defer costs so that it recognised its costs in the same profile, so there's a consistent margin. And the answer is the standard is very clear that you don't do that. Yeah. That costs that you have incurred to satisfy performance obligations, once you've satisfied them, that's an expense. So if it happens that you've, you're 50% of the way through by reference to output, but you've incurred 53% of the costs, then you just have a slightly smaller margin on that piece. And so yeah. that uh, that agenda decision was uh, was finalised. Okay. And then we move on to IFRS 16 again. It's all the new standards, subsurface rights. Yeah. So the, the question here was whether there is uh, a lease when an entity is entitled to use um, an underground space to run a pipeline through. Uh, and so the question is whether that meets the criteria to be a lease under IFRS 16. And the, the committee's tentative conclusion was that it does. Uh, and that conclusion was reconfirmed. Uh, we considered the, the comments, but then confirmed that, yes, that, that, that does meet the definition of a lease in IFRS 16. Perfect. And then we had the exciting topic of cryptocurrencies. Yes. So the tentative agenda decision explained how the existing guidance applies to um, cryptocurrency assets. Yeah. So how do you work through the waterfall of standards? And the uh, committee's observations were that for a specifically defined subset of cryptographic assets, and the agenda decision defines that subset, that um, they don't meet the definition of cash because they are not used to price pretty much everything within the economy. I think there was an acknowledgement they might at some stage meet the definition of cash, but they they don't today. The specific subset we were considering uh, do not create contractual rights and obligations. So uh, we don't look at the financial instrument standards. We can go outside the scope of the financial instrument standards, but that 
cryptocurrencies meet the definition of an intangible asset. So IS38 would apply. There might be circumstances where they are sold in the ordinary course of business, in which case rather than IS38, it would be IS2. But we had a lot of comments. Uh, most of the comments suggested that there ought to be some standard setting. Uh, it's clear that the ISB is not going to do standard setting, does not want to do standard setting. Uh, and so the committee uh, agreed to finalise the agenda decision pretty much as it was drafted uh, with the tentative decision. Yeah, and it's another nice agenda decision, I think. It takes you, like you said, it takes you through each on why you discount some and then why it is in the others. Yes, yeah, I, I think it's a very clear explanation of how the existing standards yeah. apply to the, the, the defined subset of cryptographic assets. And we've got lots of guidance on this as well, on Inform, yeah. if people want more. And then last one, employee benefits, which is all around effects of discount on plan classification. It is. So uh, this was another one that, that, that generated a relatively full post bag. Uh, and the question addresses a specific type of uh, employee benefit where the sponsors, the employer's contribution for each year is a specified amount. Yeah. However, the, uh, the amount that's paid to the employee is determined in accordance with a formula of some sort. And the question was, well, if the performance of the investments is such that all of the fund is not used to pay the employee benefits, then there might be a possibility that the employer will receive a discount or a refund. refund yeah. And the question was, does the existence of that refund just by itself, or that potential refund by itself, result in the arrangement being classified as a defined benefit plan rather than a defined contribution plan? And the tentative agenda decision said, no, it does not. So it does not in, in and of itself result in defined benefit classification. Uh, there were quite a lot of, uh, of comments. And I think there were probably two overarching concerns. Uh, one is that the tentative decision was, uh, it probably didn't address the issue broadly enough and make it clear that it's necessary to look at the substance of the arrangements over overall, not just focus on this one feature of the plan. Uh, and there was also a concern, which, which I shared amongst others, that IS-19 says that you end up with a defined contribution plan when the contributions are fixed. And I remain unconvinced that if I'm entitled or potentially entitled to a refund, that what I've paid is fixed. It feels... Uh, feels variable to me. Yeah. Uh, and so in response to the comments, the, the ISB staff proposed some fairly significant revisions. Uh, and those revisions emphasise the need to consider the overall substance of the arrangements, to consider the way in which the contributions are and how frequently the contributions are revised. And to say, yeah, okay, that a particular feature of a plan is not going to be definitive, but you need to think very hard about this type of plan. Yeah. And so that's the way the agenda decision will be finalised. And I think that uh, I think that addresses pretty much the concerns um, that the commentators had. Okay, perfect. I don't know how you did it. You managed to get the whole two days into, you know, not long. So well done, you. Um, we're going to miss you on the Interpretations Committee. You can still come back to the podcast studio, though. So don't worry, we'll still want to interview you. Thank you very much, Tony. I've been your host, Ruth Preedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers, LLP. This content is for general information purposes 
and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.